This is an ABC podcast. Hello, I'm Kerry Phillips, and this is Rear Vision. Donald Trump's staged visit to a Washington DC church after protesters had been cleared from the area with tear gas has been criticised by many, including the Episcopal Bishop of Washington, Marianne Buddy, who described it as an outrage. Joe Biden joined the condemnation. The president held up the Bible at St. John's Church yesterday. I just wish he opened it once in a while instead of brandishing it. If he opened it, he could have learned something. Last month, Donald Trump held a Bible aloft in a place forcefully cleared of peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters by riot police. The circumstances surrounding the photo opportunity were widely condemned, but not by everyone. His law and order message, his authority backed by religious faith, was well received by some in one of his core constituencies, evangelical Christians. Evangelicalism is a worldwide movement with roots in the 18th century. But in the United States, evangelicals are the single largest religious group. While not all evangelical Christians are conservative, and not all of them are white, the support of what's known as the religious right is critical to Donald Trump's re-election in November. On this rear vision, we'll find out why. Firstly, what is an evangelical Christian? Randall Balmer is an Episcopal priest and professor in religion at Dartmouth College. I have a three-part definition. An evangelical Christian is somebody who believes that the Bible is God's revelation to humanity, and so they tend to want to interpret it literally, although I think they engage what I call the ruse of selective literalism when they approach the Bible. Second, an evangelical is somebody who believes in the centrality of a conversion or a born-again experience, which comes from the third chapter of St. John in the New Testament, when Nicodemus, the Jewish leader, visits Jesus by night to ask how he, Nicodemus, can be admitted into the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus replies that you must be born again, or in some translations, born from above. And the third part of the definition is an evangelical is somebody who takes seriously the mandate to evangelize or bring others into the faith. And just to give a sense of the, the numbers, the best estimates we have is that about one-third of the U.S. population would fit the definition that I just gave you. Who are the religious right? Daniel Williams is the author of God's Own Party, The Making of the Christian Right. The term religious right was coined in about 1980. It was based on the fact that a number of journalists perceived conservative evangelical Christians at the time, they might have called them fundamentalist Christians, but today we would more commonly call them conservative evangelical Christians, behaving politically in a way that they had not before. Conservative evangelical Christians in the United States had been voting Republican in most presidential elections for the preceding 20 plus years. But in 1979, 1980, they began forming political interest groups like the Moral Majority. The Moral Majority was the most famous of these, though it wasn't the only one. These political interest groups would support particular political candidates with actual cash donations and target other political candidates for defeat in the interest of securing a particular legislative agenda. So the moral majority had about 10 points, various things that the moral majority wanted to accomplish. And that included constitutional amendment banning abortion in the United States. It included rollbacks to gay rights advances. It included a number of other things. But collectively, all of these agenda items 
were designed to reverse the cultural trends of the 1960s and 1970s that a number of conservative evangelicals objected to, things like legalized abortion in the United States, for example, or the second wave feminist movement. While the religious right may be socially conservative, Catherine Stewart, the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, says the movement has a radical political agenda. The religious right in America has morphed into a form of religious nationalism, which claims that the foundation of legitimate government in the United States is bound up with a reactionary understanding of a particular religion. So it's an anti-democratic political ideology, as well as a device for mobilizing people to vote for hyper-conservative political candidates and concentrating political power in the hands of a new elite. It's a form of identity politics in that it ties the idea of America to specific religious and cultural identities. I often use the term religious nationalism because it reflects the fact that this is a political movement. It's not just a stance in the so-called culture wars. And it also makes clear, when I use the term religious nationalism, it makes clear its similarities with other forms of religious nationalism around the world. So when leaders like Putin in Russia or Orban in Hungary or Erdogan in Turkey bind themselves tightly to religious hyper-conservatives in their countries in order to consolidate a more authoritarian form of political power, we rightly recognize this as a form of religious nationalism. And that's what we're seeing with Trump's alliances with our own religious hyper-conservatives today. The religious right emerged as a political force during the presidential election of 1980, won by the Republican candidate Ronald Reagan. I don't think there's any way that we can suggest that because people believe in God and go to church, that they should not want reflected in those people and those causes they support their own belief in morality and in the high traditions and principles which we've abandoned so much in this country. I think that I have found a great hunger in America for a spiritual revival, for a belief that law must be based on a higher law, for a return to traditions and values that we once had. The great irony of the 1980 presidential election is that evangelicals abandoned one of their own, Jimmy Carter, Southern Baptist Sunday school teacher and a progressive evangelical in favor of, well, frankly, a man who was divorced and remarried, which at that time for evangelicals was a debilitating circumstance, at least up until that election. A man who, you know, was piety, was certainly not as, let's put it this way, certainly not as robust as that of Jimmy Carter. The standard narrative that the religious right has offered for that choice in the 1980 election was that they were concerned about the legalization of abortion. And I've done a great deal of research over the last 10, even 20 years on this. And abortion had nothing to do with the rise of the religious right. What got them mobilized as a political movement was the defense of racial segregation in evangelical institutions, including Bob Jones University in Greenville, South Carolina. That's what got them motivated politically, even though they had been pretty apolitical for the previous uh, half century or so. One of the issues that really animated them at the time was the fear that racially segregated schools might be deprived of their lucrative tax exemptions. So Jerry Falwell, uh, who was a pastor, and many of his fellow Southern white conservative pastors 
were very closely involved with these segregated schools and academies. Bob Jones Jr., another very well-known figure at the time, he went so far as to call racial segregation God's established order. That's what he said. And he actually referred to desegregationists as satanic propagandists. And as far as, far as these pastors were concerned, they had right not just to separate the races, but also to receive federal money for the purpose. So they coalesced around the fear that the Supreme Court might end tax exemptions for these segregated schools. But they knew that this was really not going to be a very attractive rallying cry for their movement. They wanted to you know, draw in a lot of folks, and they didn't want to be perceived as being racist or mean. So there's this fascinating episode where they got together and basically went down a laundry list of issues they thought might unite their movement. And I'm talking 1979 or so. About six years, by the way, after Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion in America. So they were really unhappy with the civil rights movement, women's rights, school prayer was another issue that really bothered them. But when it came to abortion, it was almost like a light bulb went off and they said, huh, that could really work. The part of the history that's really been effectively erased by movement leadership is that at the time Roe versus Wade was passed, many conservative leaning religious American voters supported some form of abortion law liberalization. At that time, most Protestant Republicans actually supported some form of abortion rights. Eventually, the support of the religious right wasn't crucial to Reagan's win, but the election cemented the relationship between the movement and the Republican Party. He gave them a voice that they had not had before, so he brought them into the corridors of power. Jerry Falwell began having somewhat regular meetings at the White House, which of course would have been unimaginable before this. As far as the legislative agenda is concerned, religious right activists were mostly disappointed during the Reagan years. That is, they did not get the constitutional amendments that they had wanted. They did not get a constitutional amendment restoring the right to have public classroom prayer in public school classrooms, for example. They did not get their anti-abortion constitutional amendment, despite having a Republican Senate and a Republican president. The record on Supreme Court appointments was somewhat mixed. Of course, some of those appointments, Antonin Scalia in particular, would be enormously important for the Christian rights agenda later in the 20th century. And other appointments that Reagan made to the Supreme Court were decidedly negative for the Christian right. So Sandra Day O'Connor, for example, was a consistent voice in support of at least moderate pro-abortion rights stance. The same thing was true of Anthony Kennedy, two of Reagan's appointments to the court. So on the whole, I would say that they received some things. I think at the time they were generally pleased. I, I suspect today, if a president were to give them only what Ronald Reagan gave them, they would consider it a failure. But the fact that they were newcomers to Washington at that point and that they were trying to figure out exactly what they wanted and what they could get, just as the Reagan administration was trying to figure out what direction the Republican Party would go, I think made them more amenable to what was happening. And so as a result, people like Jerry Falwell gave Reagan consistently high marks. And when he left office, they revered him even more. And so for decades after that, Reagan would have the status as the equivalent of a secular saint, I guess, in conservative circles, generally in the United States, and certainly for the religious right. In 1988, President Reagan was followed by another Republican president, his former deputy, George H.W. Bush. Seen as a member of the East Coast establishment, Bush won only qualified support from the religious right. But by that point, they were so strongly wedded to the Republican Party that they never really gave much 
thought to supporting his opponent in either election that he ran in, either 1988 running against Mike Dukakis or running in 1992 against Bill Clinton. It's interesting to see in 1992, a lot of conservative evangelicals were quite upset with the Bush administration for a variety of reasons. They just felt like the Bush administration hadn't really supported their cause on a number of levels. There had been some pro-choice appointments to the administration. The Supreme Court appointment record was mixed. Clarence Thomas would become a hero to conservatives, but David Souter, the other Supreme Court nominee that Bush Sr. sent to the Supreme Court, ended up being a consistent voice against most of what the religious right had wanted. As they approached the election of 1992, they were rather ambivalent about Bush. But the prospect of a Democrat winning that election energized them. And it's also the case that in 1992, the Bush White House made a number of overtures to the religious right, trying to, to book speaking appearances in, in religious venues for the president running for re-election, and then strategically using his uh, vice president, Dan Quayle, who was generally not particularly admired in most sections of the country, viewed as a bit of a political lightweight at best, but was very much appreciated by a lot of religious right supporters because of his strong reputation as a social conservative, using him to reach out to the, the religious right. And so as a result, Bush received fairly strong support from conservative evangelicals. And that's been the pattern ever since, that even in years when the Republican Party has nominated someone who has not been the first choice of the religious right, that person has to ultimately win the support of what is now the Republican Party's base. Today, by most estimates, about 40 maybe even as high as 4 5% of Republican voters are conservative white evangelicals. And if you add conservative Catholics to that number, you're probably at a majority. So as a result, you cannot win the nomination without making promises to the Christian right. And Bush Sr. did that in 1988 when he ran for election, again in 1992 when he ran for re-election. And ultimately, despite all of the ambivalence about Bush, ultimately for Christian right voters, I think their calculation would come down to Supreme Court appointments, which would become increasingly important to the Christian right as they headed into the 21st century. And today it's the primary basis, I suspect, for a lot of Christian right voting is this concern over the Supreme Court and this, this quest to reverse Roe v. Wade, which hasn't quite happened yet. You're listening to Rear Vision with Kerry Phillips on Radio National. Now just over three months away from the US presidential election, we're looking at the political rise of the religious right, a key constituency of the Republican Party and crucial to Donald Trump's re-election. There is no possible way that you can separate God from government and have a successful government. If the righteous, the pro-family, the moral, the biblical, the godly, the hardworking and the decent individuals in this country stay out of politics. Who on this earth does that leave to make the policies under which you and I live and struggle to survive? American televangelist James Robeson. George H.W. Bush didn't win a second term in 1992, giving way to a Democratic president, Bill Clinton. But in 2000, another Republican entered the White House, his son, George W. Bush, who beat Al Gore in an election decided by the Supreme Court on the basis of a handful of votes. Bush won that election by the narrowest of narrow margins. So in that sense, anyone who went to the polls to vote for George W. Bush in 2000 was 
critical to his election. And then in 2004, even more evidently, conservative white evangelicals and conservative Catholics were critical to Bush's re-election efforts because of the same-sex marriage issue. Only a few months before the election, the state Supreme Court of the state of Massachusetts had issued the first ruling in the United States that required a state to legally recognize same-sex marriage. And that was still very controversial at the time. There was a majority support against that. Of course, in a few years, that would change. But at the time, Republicans saw the potential to pick up a lot of votes on that issue. And there was some polling that was done uh, in the state of Ohio, which was a a critical swing state that really decided the election, that indicated that the same-sex marriage issue had brought conservative voters to the polls who might not have otherwise voted. So there was credible evidence to say in 2004 that had it not been for strong white conservative evangelical turnout and socially conservative Catholic turnout, that it's possible that the Democratic candidate, John Kerry, might have won the election. Gay marriage may have won Bush that election. Francis Fitzgerald is the author of The Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America. Because at that point, there were enough people against it, and the religious right was formidably organized at that point by much greater organizers than Jerry Falwell. The Christian Coalition, for example, and then there was James Dobson, who was, was a radio evangelist at that time. He was a family preacher, and uh, he was greatly loved by evangelicals for helping them out with their children and their spouses and so on. But he was very political from the start, and he formed a huge organization. And it was sort of he and the Southern Baptists who really won the second election for Bush after he'd become very unpopular because of the Iraq War and other issues. Catherine Stewart says that since the 1970s, the religious right has grown into a well-oiled political machine. They invested in all the tools of modern political campaigns. They spent decades investing in modern campaign infrastructure. They built mailing lists and databases, messaging strategies, media platforms in order to reach voters and urge them to vote for conservative candidates. We saw at that time over those years the growth and development of various think tanks that merged conservative religion with far-right economic policy. And the religious right also strategically obtained control of a certain portion of the airwaves to spread religious programming through television and uh, radio programs in particular. They also began to make very heavy investments in legal advocacy groups like the Alliance Defense Fund, which is now called the Alliance Defending Freedom. It's known as the legal juggernaut of the religious right, a sort of very heavy legal component to it. There was a development of other legal organizations like the American Center for Law and Justice and Liberty Council. And there were networking organizations that developed at that time, such as the Council for National Policy. They connected key religious right activists with key funders. And then there were these right-wing policy groups like Focus on the Family and the Family Research Council, which developed various regional and state initiatives. So the movement really grew over many years and over time. And even during the Obama years, the movement made tremendous and I think underappreciated advances specifically through the courts. How does this manifest itself when Americans come to vote? While a Democratic presidential candidate has to win support from some Christian voters, no Republican can win without the votes of the religious right. Well, conservative white evangelicals are not a majority of the 
American voting population. White evangelicals in general make up no more than about 25% of voters in the United States. If two-thirds to three-quarters of them go for a Republican candidate, that's the base, but then the Democrats are going to build a different sort of coalition. So Democratic candidates consistently win about 90% or more of the African-American vote, for example, which is overwhelmingly Christian. So there are a lot of other groups. Uh, Catholics split their vote 50-50. And then the increasingly large percentage of people with no religious affiliation, often dubbed the religious nuns, which I think now make up about 21, 22% of the vote. Those voters usually vote at least by a two-thirds to one-third ratio for the, the Democratic candidate. So today, of the vote that a Democratic candidate would get, less than a third would come from white Christians of any stripe. It would be predominantly mainline Protestant and Catholic rather than evangelical. But essentially, that would be a, a rather small percentage of their vote. And then another third would come from non-white Christians, mainly Black and Hispanic. And then another third would come from those with no religious affiliation, the religious nuns, and a number of non-Christian religious people, Jews, for example. So that would be today what you would expect for a Democrat who could win the White House, like Barack Obama and what Joe Biden hopes to do later this year, and we'll see if he does. No Republican can win without very strong support from the religious right. And in that sense, the religious right can be decisive in an election. But the religious right is by no means a majority in the United States, and they can't actually dictate the results of an election if a Democratic candidate is successful at building a coalition of other people. Details of Trump's many marriages, infidelities, and even a video of him boasting of forcing himself on women failed to sink his 2016 campaign. To be honest, I've, I've struggled uh, since 2016 to understand why it is that 81% of white evangelicals, and I think white is a key word here, supported Donald Trump for president. My own analysis of what happened is that the 2016 election finally laid bare the fiction that the religious right was interested in so-called family values. I don't think there's any possible case that anyone could make that Donald Trump represented family values. Now, they will say that it had to do with the importance of judicial appointments. Well, I suppose you can make that argument, but in order to make that argument, you've got to turn a blind eye to a whole lot of other behavior that evangelicals traditionally have condemned. And the reason I say that the 2016 election dispensed with a fiction that this was a movement about family values is I think the 2016 election allowed evangelicals and the religious right finally to circle back to the founding principles of their movement, which was based tragically in racism in the 1970s. Racism is what got them going as a political movement in the 1970s. And uh, Donald Trump was very, very effective at casting his campaign as a racist campaign, not only against African-Americans, but certainly famously against uh, immigrants, you know, the whole idea of building a wall, Mexico's gonna pay for it and that sort of thing. He was uh, emitting throughout the whole campaign a series of racist dog whistles that tragically appealed to the religious right. And uh, they supported him overwhelmingly in, in 2016. I do have to add that I think part of the reason was the longstanding antipathy 
that the religious right has had toward Hillary Clinton, something that they uh, stoked again and again during the course of that campaign. But still, I think you need to reckon with the fact that uh, racism was a big part of the appeal of Donald Trump in 2016, and the religious right fell into line. Republican candidates cannot win without very strong support from the religious right and particularly strong turnout. So a lot of the effort is about boosting turnout. They know that they'll win a supermajority of the white evangelical voters. But then the question is, are these voters going to come to the polls or stay home? In, in the United States, unlike in a number of places, there's no law requiring people to vote. And so people are disillusioned with candidates. They may just decide to sit that election out. And so the question is, can you energize the, the voters? Can you appeal to them? Can you make them believe they need to come to the polls? And in 2016, Donald Trump effectively did that with white evangelicals partly because of religious right antipathy to his opponent, Hillary Clinton, and partly because, I would say even more importantly, because of his promise to nominate conservatives to the Supreme Court. Every Republican had made that promise for decades before this, going all the way back to Ronald Reagan. But what was different about Donald Trump in 2016 was that he actually handed them a list, a specific list of candidates who had been vetted by the very conservative Federalist Society. And that showed it maybe even more determination, a stronger commitment to what was now the number one issue for the religious right, which was changing the Supreme Court. And because that election occurred only a year after the 2015 Supreme Court case that was about same-sex marriage and mandated legal recognition of same-sex marriage nationwide, which, as you can imagine, generated enormous controversy for the religious right, and made them fear for future Supreme Court decisions. They believed that their own religious liberty was at stake. Because of their strong interest in the Supreme Court, they were willing to overlook some very obvious flaws. And of course, these flaws have been covered quite extensively, and so they would not be news to any of your, your listeners. But needless to say, Donald Trump is not most people's idea of the ideal Christian. And so the question is, why did this group of conservative white Christians give him such strong support? And one explanation, maybe not the only explanation, but one that I think definitely played a role was their fear for what would happen in a Democratic presidential administration and their strong interest in the Supreme Court. Will those on the religious right who voted for Trump in 2016 be happy with what he's delivered? And will they vote for him again in November? I think there's some evidence that there's been a defection on the part of evangelical voters from Donald Trump. I suppose many of them will say that he gave us the judicial appointments we wanted. And we simply had to hold our nose about all of the rest of this. I mean, I've written about this and I believe it. I think the 2016 campaign marked the death of evangelicalism. Here you have a movement that historically stood on the side of those who were on the margins of society. If you look back at evangelicalism in the 19th century, evangelicals were very concerned about issues of slavery and abolition. They were very concerned about the plight of prisoners. The whole idea of penitentiary came out of evangelical thought in the early part of the 19th century. They were very much concerned about the plight of immigrants and trying to advance their station in life by supporting uh, public schools. They were very much in favor of women's equality, including voting rights for women. This is an agenda that is utterly at odds with that of the Republican Party and Donald Trump. And uh, I think the 2016 election suggests to me that this is a movement that uh, surrendered all of its principles 
in its support for Donald Trump in 2016. Now, is this irreversible? Can evangelicals come back and recover their senses and uh, recover their conscience? It remains to be seen. I certainly hope so. But we won't know till November. Randall Balmer, John Phillips Professor in Religion at Dartmouth College. The other guests were Professor Daniel Williams, a historian at the University of West Georgia, Catherine Stewart, the author of The Power Worshippers, Inside the Dangerous Rise of Religious Nationalism, and Francis Fitzgerald, the author of The Evangelicals, The Struggle to Shape America. Simon Branthwaite is the sound engineer for this rear vision. Bye from Kerry Phillips. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.